Hello, welcome to Publish at Franciscan. Today we speak to Dr. Logan Gage about his paper, A Saint for Our Times, Newman on Faith, Fallibility and Certitude. Dr. Gage, talk to us a little bit about this paper. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, this is a, a paper in which I try to talk about Newman's view of certitude and how it relates to what in our tradition is called the certitude of faith, that there's some sense in which faith can have a kind of certitude to it. And there's this weird tension because it seems like in terms of his epistemology or his view of his view of knowledge, Newman thinks that you can know things on less than imperfect evidence, right? So he doesn't think these people are called infallibilists, these people who think that you in order to know something, you have to, you know, have the highest possible evidence where you couldn't maybe even possibly be wrong about it. Mm-hmm. And so um, Newman's not in that camp, I think. I think he's in what we call the fallibilist camp, which is the vast, vast majority of, of epistemologists today, it seems to me. And fallibilists think that you don't need perfectly conclusive evidence or reasons to believe things, but that you just need a really, you know, a really high degree of justification or really, you know, really sound, you need really good reasons, but they don't have to be such that you couldn't possibly be wrong under any circumstances. And so it's weird because Newman holds, seems to hold that view of epistemology, but then we have this thing in our tradition where people talk a lot about the certitude of faith, and so what I'm trying to do is reconcile that a little bit, or show how it's possible that one could be both, be a fallibilist and believe hmm. that faith is in some sense certain. Uh, Matt likes to ask questions that start with, research is me-search. <laughs> um, I like it. But and not, not all philosophical writing is terribly personal, but this, yeah. you have a... This comes out of a lot of thinking about mm. navigating your own thinking, right? This isn't yeah. just a paper on Newman you thought you'd write, but trying yeah. to navigate where you sit in this. And could you talk about that a little bit and sort of how this paper came to be and what you, how you think it might help people? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'm pretty convinced that in – I mean, I'm convinced independently in epistemology that fallibilism is just the right position. Um, and I've always just thought of it's kind of an unreasonable skeptic's trick to push the st- the – the standards for knowledge up so high that you don't know anything unless you're, it's utterly indubitable for you or you couldn't possibly be wrong about it. Um, so I'm not very worried about skepticism and so forth, for instance, because I just think that a more moderate understanding of what knowledge is is reasonable, that knowledge can be had on less than perfect, you know, perfectly inclusive grounds. So um, I'm more worried that in our, I guess, sort of the beneath the surface here is that I'm really worried about a lot of our Catholic intellectual culture, and I think that a lot of it is very, in a weird way, here's what I think has happened. I think that we've perceived the threat of relativism and postmodernism and all this irrationalism from, you know, the last several decades of intellectual Western culture, and we see that, and we want to run 180 degrees the other way, Mm -hmm. and so we start ramping up our talk, right? Certitude, 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 and, and we ramp it up higher and higher and higher. And and then if you stop and think about it for a minute, though, it just feels like, really, do we have that? You know, Ooh. I mean, I'd be really worried if the church was really, if the church was really saying and all the great saints were really saying that to achieve knowledge, say, of God's existence or of matters of faith that you have, and matters related to faith, that you have to have absolutely conclusive evidence such that you couldn't possibly think of any scenario in which you could be mistaken. I'd be really worried then that I certainly don't have that. Yeah. But I'm more worried for – I'm convinced that this is the right position. So I'm more worried for other people. I'm more worried many, for many of our students that yeah. think that um, they're pushing the standards up so high in order to know anything, and, and then they think that they have it. But mm-hmm. I think they haven't even thought about it. And I'm worried the minute somebody comes along and points out to them, 
hey, but you could possibly be wrong about that, right? Like your evidence is cons- yes. is good, but consistent with also say God's non-existence. There's nothing that utterly, you know, demonstrates it as though it's like simple math mm-hmm. that demonstrates it in that kind of way, such that you couldn't, you, you can't even see any way in which you could possibly be wrong about it. Um, I'm worried that their faith can be undermined yeah. because you've pushed up the standards for, for faith so high. So I, it, that's my, my sort of personal story behind why I care about this topic. That's nice. So maybe bring us into Newman a little bit. What is, what is Newman's position on this? So I think Newman has a more moderate view. He doesn't have an exact view of knowledge, but he has a more moderate view, it seems to me, of evidence or reasons for belief, right? Because we, I mean, think about it. He's in the 19th century, and he's seeing all these people become obsessed with science and become obsessed with certitude, and and he thinks that, he thinks the Enlightenment, I, I think he thinks this, that the Enlightenment has really restricted the scope of what counts as knowledge. So, so for instance, he's, he's upset with John Locke because John Locke says basically you don't really he's kind of in the infallibilist camp you don't really know anything unless it's utterly demonstrable in a sort of mathematical way but then he criticizes Locke for being for kind of taking it back right so putting that out there and then Locke says yeah but there's a lot of stuff that's so close to that that we should just kind of treat it as knowledge and and Newman just nails him on this right and says no you got to be consistent if you're saying that's what knowledge is um, then almost nothing meets that that standard. I mean, and by the way, maybe nothing. Um, so, for instance, you know, math, mathematical truths. For instance, yeah. there's a lot of mathematical yeah. truths that I think you could reasonably doubt, even though they're necessarily true, yeah. right? It's just that the proofs for them are so complex, you can't hold it all in your mind at one time, and so forth. So, just because something's a necessary truth doesn't mean that you know it in a kind of infallible way with a kind of infallible insight. Um, so, and in fact, there's a lot of mathematical theorems that are either necessarily true or false, and no one knows, you know, whether they are true or false. So there's a difference between our view of things and what's necessarily true out there. And I think Newman thinks that in matter, here's what he thinks, is even apart from matters of, of religious belief, in everyday life, we are certain of things. So he starts with that. Like, just phenomenologically, look around. We're quite certain of a number of things. Now, not necessarily in the Cartesian way, but, you know, you, he, his constant example is something like, I know that England is an island. Now, listen, he's never walked around the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He can't see it all at once and whatever. But he just is like, listen, I am not giving up that belief. Um, I think of things like, he also says the belief that, that I'm going to die someday. Now, neither of those is, like, demonstrably established, but could you think of anything more certain than that for you? Um, I throw in ordinary truths like, you know, there are kangaroos in Australia and that kind of thing. Like, you're just not – you're probably not going to talk me out of that one or that I have hands. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to talk me out of that, even though I can imagine Matrix-like scenarios on which I don't really have a body. Um, You're not going to talk me out of that. So some of our younger listeners, The Matrix was a movie. (laughs) I know. They'll understand it when it gets remade, right, because all of our good movies are being remade. Yeah, yeah. So there are there are these sort of logically possible scenarios, and that and they don't really undermine our they don't undermine our certitude. And so what, here's what Newman thinks. Newman thinks that the way you achieve certitude ordinarily is not by way of demonstrative logical syllogisms. I mean, I, I he he can be quite harsh sounding sometimes toward toward logic, and it's not because he hates logic, but he thinks that formal logic doesn't we only really bring it in afterward he said he says to like arrange the thoughts we've already had or the things that we didn't we have all these beliefs that we didn't establish by logical demonstration and then we bring in logical demonstration afterward and we're like see guys here's how we have it in a post hoc kind of way yeah and and 
and that's and again, that's not to poo-poo logic or to be a skeptic about logic. That's not what he's doing. He's just saying that the way we normally establish certitude in our lives about cases like I'm going to die or England as an island is by what philosophers today would call a cumulative case, that you have thousands of strands of evidence from different experiences, different things you've read, things you've heard, mm-hmm. other things you've thought about, you know, how it could or couldn't be. You have all these different reasons, and it's really hard to establish. Uh, first of all, no one of them proves that England's an island or that mm-hmm. you're going to die. So, so it's not demonstrable in that sense. But it's such an overwhelming case from so many different, mm. you know, strands that he thinks that's how you achieve ordinary certitude. And then he... He wants to say, listen, if that's true in ordinary matters, like England is an island or I'm going to die, then that's probably, too, how a lot of our certitude about, say, God's existence or other sorts of things probably works. And it's interesting on this point because the Catechism seems to quote Newman, though they don't reference him. They seem to quote Newman saying that the proofs for God's existence are just like this. They are... um, in fact, I, I have the quote here at the end of my the end of my paper that they are. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but the point is that they are. Um, how to put it? Uh, they they're not demonstrative proofs in in the sense of like mathematics or something. What they are is a sort of. Um, um, oh, I have the okay. I have the quote here. Um, where where is it? Um, the sense here's what it says. Catechism says this: these are proofs, not like in like a mathematical strict demonstrative sense, but in the sense of converging and convincing arguments. Mm. And that's one of Newman's mm. sort of phrases: these 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 sort of converging lines of of probable evidence. Um, so they are converging and convincing arguments, which allow us to attain certainty about the truth. But the thing we got to recognize is that evidence is much broader than dem- than strict demonstrations for him. Yep. knowledge and certitude don't require this like super high Cartesian standard. So when he says certitude, he really means it in our ordinary sense. And what do we really care about? Do we care about having Cartesian certitude? I mean, why? Can can you say just a little more (laughs) about what Cartesian certitude is? So, so Descartes, this is a little bit complicated, but Descartes, um, this, here's the, the textbook version of Descartes says, says that what he's trying to do is, if you remember Descartes trying to doubt everything in order to figure out what he really knows. And then he wants to build up, his knowledge back on that foundation of indubitable knowledge. Um, and so what he's looking for is something that can't even possibly be doubted. Um, you know, and so what he decides is that there is this one foundational truth, and that's that he exists, which, by the way, he's stealing all this from St. Augustine uh, without any attribution, so far as I can tell. So St. Augustine says, see, fallor, sum, and then, and, then, and then Descartes famously says, cogito, ergo, sum, right? So I think, therefore, I am, that there's this, as long as I'm thinking, you know, even if I'm totally deceived about everything else by some evil demon or something crazy, I at least can't doubt that I'm, I'm thinking and that I exist, right? And so... Um, I'm not a super big fan of that project for several reasons. For one thing, I don't think it's as indubitable as he thinks. Um, But um, if Descartes is saying that knowledge itself requires that standard, that knowledge is, you know, to know something, it's got to be utterly indubitable for you, and otherwise you don't really know it, or you don't, you know, then I also think that's a crazy definition of knowledge. There is a reading of Descartes that I'm more tempted toward these days, though, that basically says he's not looking for a definition of knowledge, that knowledge requires, you know, um, evidence that couldn't even possibly be mistaken, uh, entailing evidence. But maybe what he's looking for is not so much what do I know, but what do I know for certain. 
Hmm. And apparently, uh, you know, researchers who've, researchers who've looked at this have said, in almost every language, we have a distinction between what you know and what you know for certain. And so maybe, so, so, so I don't know. So how, depending on how you read Descartes, you know, could, could wrinkle things here. But in general, we think of Cartesian certitude as the highest possible certitude where you couldn't possibly, under any conceivable scenario, be mistaken. Yeah. And then some people want to say, you need that for knowledge. Hmm. Newman's pretty clearly denying that. It sounds like there's a kind of immediacy and all-encompassing comprehensiveness to that kind of knowledge that's just not possible for the human. Like, it, it rings of something like divine knowledge. That's what I think. I think you're, this sounds a whole lot more like like divine, yeah, like, like God's in a God's eye view of things rather than our own. I mean, we are limited, finite, material creatures who learn things over time. We can make mistakes in reason. We can make mistakes about what we think are necessary truths. Um, our mod- as philosophers call our modal intuitions, our intuitions about what's possible and what's necessary. We make mistakes about those. And so, I, I'm, by the way, I'm also convinced here, going back maybe to Brand's, Brand's question about, um, you know, why am I I'm interested in this? I don't think that you need, um, I just don't think we, in order to fight skepticism, I don't think that we need to go 180 degrees the other way and say that we need the highest possible, conceivable God's knowledge, if you will, in order to fight skepticism. I just think we have lots of other reasonable replies to the skeptics. And one of the things that I found in my own research is that the the major arguments for skepticism in the ancient world to today, most of them actually are created by this definition of knowledge as as inf- the infallibilist view of knowledge. So most of the skeptical arguments go something like this. Since knowledge is uh, a state where you couldn't possibly be mistaken, then you don't know this kind of thing and that kind of thing where you could possibly be mistaken. So you don't know that you have hands because we can think of a scenario where an evil demon is deceiving you or you're in the Matrix computer program or whatever. The mere possibility then would undermine that level of claim. So in other words, what's actually driving the skepticism, it seems to me, is the infallibilism. Mm-hmm. And whereas I think many Catholic intellectuals today, they're retreating to a kind of infallibilism in, a, in order to avoid irrationalism and skepticism. And what I'm worried about is that if they do that, they're going to end up undermining themselves. Because I think it's the, in, it's the super high view as though we can achieve godlike knowledge rather than a really human, ordinary mm-hmm. kind of knowledge. That's what's actually driving the skepticism. So it's kind of self-defeating for them to retreat to what they think is a stronghold that, that has been undermined. Yeah, from what you've been saying, it seems like Newman is tracking the ordinary kind of certainty that we're using exactly. in everyday life and then describing it in a rigorous Yeah, exactly, fashion. exactly. And we can do this. I've noticed this with my students. You can do this, right? Um, you can say something like, I'll say, do you, how many of you know this? And everybody will raise their hand. It's some common item of knowledge, you know, that you have hands or that, that you know, you, you have a mother or something like that. And... And then I say, yeah, but do you know that? Like, do you really know that? You know, you just got to put the inflection and the hands start slowly going down. And I think that that's because, again, there's a trick there, I think. There's a trick there because I started with our ordinary sense of Mm. knowledge. And now I'm giving you, like, the philosophical skeptic's highest view of knowledge and saying, do you know it in that sense? But it seems to me that nothing follows from the fact that you don't know something indubitably. Nothing follows about whether you really know it in our ordinary sense. And similarly with the word certitude, to say that I don't know something with Cartesian certitude is not to say that in our ordinary sense, I don't know it with certitude. Let me ask a question. So so bring it back to faith, because faith isn't just... um, Faith isn't just the sum of a bunch of knowledge, right? It's not just I have sufficient knowledge about things and therefore I have faith, mm-hmm. right? As a theological virtue, how does, how does this infallible stuff, 
and the stuff about knowledge. How does this play into the virtue of faith, the theological virtue of faith? Good. So a lot of the a lot of the talk about certitude, we have to be careful because in a lot of our theological tradition, they're talking about it metaphysically. Mm. So they're saying it is certain that God has established this, but they don't mean like from our position of our evidence, we could never imagine a scenario where you know, Jesus Christ isn't God and didn't found the church. Of course we can imagine that, mm-hmm. right? What they are saying is, no, there is a God, he doesn't lie, and he's established these truths through testimony. But again, for us on our side, so thinking metaphysically, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just saying there is a tight connection. God has done this, God's not a liar, so it is certain in the sense of it's fixed. Yep. Like metaphysically it's fixed, it's there, it's true. That's different than saying from our subjective perspective, from our own personal psychological point of view and the evidence and experiences that we've had, are we 100% in a Cartesian way certain about it? Yeah. Well, that those aren't quite the same, the same thing. And to say that I'm not Cartesianly certain about all of, you know, about, about the church, it's not to say that it is not really fixed and established. Mm-hmm. Those are, so we can look at, and St. Bonaventure makes this point, the difference between sort of certitude on the side of the object versus sort of from the subject's point of view. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, many others make that kind of distinction. Um, so we got to be clear that that it is fixed and in in, in established. If Catholicism is true, right? it's just fixed yes. and established. Um, but then from our point of view, that's not to say that, that's, that it is um, indubitable from our point of view. Now, in terms of what God is doing to us, I mean, my sense is that grace builds on nature, right? I mean, this is this great Thomistic principle that, that we get, that that we ought to think that the way God acts is congru- in, in the realm of grace is congruent with his ordinary acts of creation. And, you know, he's not going to do one thing over here and something's opposite over there. So because God has built us to know—here's one thing I would take out of this kind of Newmanian project. Because God has built us to, to achieve ordinary certitude in this kind of cumulative case way— well, then when it comes to matters of faith, there's going to be an added element because we believe that God is, is you know, acting here in a, in a supernatural way. We, there's something extra going on that's not happening in the normal case for sure, and that's where we're getting infused virtue and so forth. But the, it, it makes sense to me that God would work with our natural faculties. It's not that, he's, it's not that your natural faculties work this way and then he's going to zap you with some God beliefs yeah. out of nowhere. Yep. And so my sense is, in, in, and again, this is much more speculative, but my sense is that God works with your ordinary faculties. So when you think of how ordinary people come to faith, think mm-hmm. about this for one thing. It takes a long time. It isn't, it isn't something that just happens overnight. So, we, I, so when we say infuse virtue, we, th- we shouldn't think you're automatically you know, zapped at one moment in time rather than God working continuously throughout your life, which is one thing I love about Augustine's confessions, right? How you see the slow buildup mm-hmm. to his conversion. It's almost too slow. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get mad that it only happens in book eight or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my sense is that God works with the way he's, he's built us. And so God gives you this conversation and then that conversation and this bit of evidence and that book that you read and all these converging lines of evidence are starting to build up. Now, I think that the, the lines of evidence that, again, I think are probably you know, divinely inspired that God's appointed you to meet these people and read these books and so forth, those, so it's not just reducible to like mere evidence as such, but God's obviously at work behind the scenes. I do think, though, that there's a difference between that all adding up and then making this actual mm-hmm. commitment of faith that God is touching your life in a special way there. But notice what he's doing. He's giving you a divine insight into these converging lines of evidence mm-hmm. that they speak beyond themselves and beyond the natural world. And so God's active in the process of giving you these disparate lines of evidence. And then it seems to me that he's active in helping helping you 
um, you know, a lot of times our tradition speaks about seeing by a divine light, mm-hmm. right? That God's given us light to see. In other words, he's extending our vision in these converging lines of evidence beyond what we can strictly see and demonstrate. But we have an insight, a divine insight into the truth. So my sense is that that's how it works. But we can't ever forget that divine element. And so, say, God's existence would be different in, that, in some sense then from, you know, making a, a commitment to God in yeah. an act of faith and so forth. There's going to be that extra special direct, you know, um, insight that God's giving you. And would you say that insight given by grace is that which allows you to make that wholehearted conviction that is faith? I think so because it would be irrational. It would be, it would be an irrational commitment to the person of God if you, if you didn't have a sort of epistemic insight into the reality first. It would be more like a leap in the dark, and um, and so it seems to me that you've got you've got to be illumined in some way, illuminated to be able to see a little, to see farther than your natural eyes can see. Um, not with perfect certitude, but you, but you, you can see that this is true. That everything in your life has led to this moment, and that everything is pointing in this direction. And you, you've got to be able to see it as reasonable. Otherwise, then it's just an. If it wasn't, if there wasn't that kind of divine light preceding this wholehearted commitment, it, well, what are you committing to? I, I wonder. You know, you're not even seeing very clearly what you're committing to. So I think so. Does that sound right to yeah, you too? And, and you that know. grace of faith then has a greater certitude even than our natural knowledge. It's a kind of depth of insight that surpasses. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think so. I think our tradition wants to wants to say that. It's a little bit hard to to um, parse out maybe what that means. I do think, for one thing, it comes with a deeper assurance because when you're seeing the things of God, you also have the sense that God is there helping you see the things of God. And that's definitely not the case in your yeah. ordinary matters that England is an island. You know, I'm really convinced of that, but I'm not convinced that... God's with me right now, helping me see that in the same sort of way that I think in an act of faith, you really have the sense that God is here, God is with me now, God is allowing me to see the truth of my own depravity, and to see uh, the, this offer of salvation, and and giving me the grace to see that I could commit to him wholeheartedly, and, and, uh, and so forth, and that I can cooperate with him in this. And so there's a deeper level of assurance, I think, at several different, at several different levels. I, I, Maybe at the evidential level, but also just at the personal sort of security, the more subjective side of certitude. There's a deep sense of assurance because of the comfort of the Holy Spirit there, I think. Yeah, it seems like this ties in as you're talking. I'm thinking about um, the spiritual life and sort of the traditional threefold path of spiritual development. So the purgative Mm -hmm. way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. And what you see in all the, the, the mystics and great spiritual writers, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, even Therese of Lisieux, is... There's a point at which in the illuminative way, there's a, cert- there's a sort of a great certitude. Mm. And then when they hit the dark night of the soul, yeah. they're plunged into this tremendous darkness, almost to the point of um, disbelief or atheism. Ther- yeah. Therese, Therese says in Story of a Soul that she felt like an atheist and that, that she, she always viewed after the dark night of the soul um, atheists as her brothers and sisters mm. because she had such an insight into what it was mm. to feel such an absence of God, yeah. to almost lose that, that, that there's maybe even a purification of, of the initial certitude you get as yeah. you advance in holiness. Then there's this radical purification where in the dark night of the soul, you're stripped of all certitude, like yeah. absolute, even the certitude of faith. And then finally, when you're re-immersed in these, this unitative way, this mystical marriage of the soul and, and, yeah. and the blessed trinity, the certitude seems to be like this I mean, almost beyond um, yeah. what can be put in word. I mean, it, 
all of all of the great mystics almost speak about it in poetry because because it sort of divide mm. defies being able to be spoken about in normal terms yeah. right yeah um so I, I wonder if there isn't something here where the certitude we're talking about of faith doesn't deepen and develop as god draws yeah god sort of continues to draw us towards certitude but part of that growth and certitude is actually losing it in the dark night of the soul yeah, so that's not merely intellectual, but that's moved more into into the will with trust, yeah. it, it seems to me. So, And we have analogs of this, right? I mean, if someone said, you know, um, I don't know, your wife is accused of like an axe murder or something, right? And you're just like, no. You're just mad. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah Brittany is, Brittany is he's pointing, accused, he's pointing yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and it's, and it's someone you've built up this relationship over all these years, and you've observed them under so many different circumstances, and you know, you know that they wouldn't even be that good with an axe or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is. You have all this evidence that, you know, that's pointed in that direction, but let's just say person after person testifies yeah. to this, and, you know, they keep bringing out more and more supposedly scientific evidence and, you know, uh, fingerprints and all, you know. There might be a moment where you waver, but there's also an appropriate trust, it seems to me, mm. that you're just like, no. And, and and I don't think, by the way, the lesson there is, oh, well, the evidence doesn't matter. Yeah. The point is that your evidence can add up in such a significant way that no one's pretty – it's, it's yeah. almost inconceivable someone's going to talk you into into something like this. This is this has come up in a big way recently. I mean, so uh, sort of to, thinking of counterexamples, though. So Jeffrey Dahmer – I think it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah was like married, had a family. Yeah. And his wife, apparently when, when he was exposed, his wife said she had no clue right. that he could have done yeah. some terrific things. And I'm thinking of um, Ravi Zacharias yeah, too, right. but with the allegations that have come out. That I spoke to someone recently who said that Ravi had had such a profound impact mm. on their conversion and the way they thought about Christianity. And, and so it seems like there are people that even within his own organization that were so baffled right. that they, they, they couldn't, yeah. the evidence. That's the being, fallible part, man. Yeah. You can be wrong no, about that's it. that's right. You can be wrong. <laughs> yeah, so it is foul. Right? You can be wrong. But with the Ravi thing, I think they also said there were things, there were things they had thought were one-offs. Oh, okay. Yeah. That they had, okay. Because of the overwhelming evidence, each one had kind of been dismissed, been or something dismissed like and then didn't yes. affect the overall yes. evidence I and see. until it until it did. Yeah. Yeah, I and I'm just guessing that there were some signs with Dahmer too. I but. was going to say, yeah, we can, yeah. You know those things where you're like, in hindsight, yeah, yeah. and then you go, whoa. You hope, because otherwise that sort of stuff is, I mean, yeah. to think that we could miss yeah. and be so, have such counter evidence. Uh, um, to think that he and his wife had a great marriage. Right. And she didn't know. She had no clue. That, that yeah. Also on a personal, he made my life as a child pretty rough. Because <laughs> your name's Dom. And, yeah. Uh, Dahmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> feeling for me. <laughs> <laughs> Logan, it, it sounds then that the mystical tradition speaking about the dark night is mm. kind of a clarification of this certitude mm. or a refinement of it mm. in, in the face of all of these difficulties that mm. are presented in the life of faith. Would that seem fair? Yeah. Like where the certitude doesn't in a way become eclipsed, mm. but is kind of refined and clarified and made more definitive. That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not mm. totally sure how to, how to fit that in. It does seem like it seems like God is drawing them closer by, in a sense, by withdrawing a certain epistemic distance. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, he does that to all of us, right? I mean, we don't walk out the front door and just, it doesn't say in the sky, made by Yahweh or something, right? Um, to, some, to some extent, there's, a, there's a, an epistemic distance that for whatever reason, 
God wants to keep from us. Now, that's not to say he's completely hidden or that his existence isn't obvious in some sense. I think when you look at, you know, at, at nature, it's almost impossible for me at this point to just think this is all an accident or something. That's just, it really seems crazy to me. But it's also not, like I said, it's not written on every, you know, strand of DNA, made by Yahweh, made by Yahweh, made by Yahweh. Um, and so, and so there is some distance. That? What's that? You got a melody for that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a hit soon. Um, so there's, it's, so there's, all, there's some epistemic distance with all of us. And it seems to me that those who have, in, it sounds to me that those who have drawn closest to God in this sort of mystical way, it's, you know, it's a paradoxical thing that God in some sense withdraws an even greater epistemic mm-hmm. distance, but it sounds to me like the purpose is something like to grow their trust, yes. to grow, you know, and we all go through this to some extent. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced this and to some extent. It's a paradox within faith, right? It's the yeah. famous, deep, deep attachment to someone yeah. without vision. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, and by the way, so when people talk about the certitude of faith, they should keep in mind there's that whole, I mean, there's this whole strand of our tradition basically says this is not sight. This is not the same as literally seeing something. Yeah. But it's a weird thing where you can have the assurance that is just like seeing something because the Holy Spirit is testifying to your heart. But uh, And you have lots of evidence, not to say there's no evidence. But it's not literally the same as seeing something. And, and so St. Thomas will often mention, too, that that's and, – and, and Newman mentions this and other people mention it – that this is part of why faith is meritorious, is that there's a kind of trust involved precisely because there is always at least some epistemic distance, you know, um, there, that not everything is perfectly obvious here. And I take it the same thing that really happens in all our relationships, right? I mean, you know, with our spouses and so forth, there's always – um, a trust that's that's being that's being built. You never perfectly understand the other person, and there's all there's occasion every day to give the other person the benefit of the doubt and so forth. That you can't ever perfectly see their motives and all of this, and there's a kind of trust that's called for, and that's what that's precisely what what builds your relationship. I'd also add that there's a kind of suffering in that epistemic distance sometimes, and maybe that's oh, part absolutely. of what the mystics are talking about too, right? Absolutely. There's a kind of suffering that comes with that, and that, and I think that that we all know that suffering is one of the things that that establishes a kind of a different kind of knowledge of God, a kind of um, a familiarity with his sufferings, right? That there's that there's a kind of union. I mean, I guess I think of like cancer survivors or something, right? You ever see two cancer survivors I've never met? You're at a dinner party or something, and then you see these people and like, I am too. And then they have this instant kinship and they're drawn together by their by their shared suffering. And and I've got to think that this is one epistemic way that we can we can suffer, and that that too is a way of growing growing closer. It's a it's an opportunity for growing closer in union to Christ. Yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, epistemic yeah, epistemic distance. There, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It seems like it. Hmm. It sounds like we're perpetually in a state of frustration by not seeing God face to face. It's like yeah. we're searching for that kind of certitude in everything, yeah. and we're not finding it, and we're cast back in frustration yeah. and skeptical and doubting and, yeah. and all of these difficulties. I think pastorally we got to be sensitive to our students here because, I, I mean, I often have people come to me and they say yeah. something like this. when they, you know, Once they hear my, my talk about, like, don't go overboard on the certitude thing, they're like, thank God someone said that. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm surrounded by all these people that are going on and on and on and on and on about how certain they are. And, and they're like, I just, they're like, I think this is true, but like I don't, whatever they say that they have, or like yeah. I don't have that. Yep. I'm like, me neither, man. I don't, yeah. that's not, you know, I don't, when people are going overboard on the search stuff, I get very uneasy inside. And I can tell with many of our students, they, they, they do too. And so to act like we have a kind of godlike knowledge when we don't can do a real disservice, can really harm 
our fellow brothers and sisters because then they're thinking that they're missing out on something that, you know, only, and they're thinking, I'm not one of the super spiritual people and mm-hmm. so forth. And But when, as you pointed out, it turns out the, the super spiritual people, Matt, yeah. right? Like they... They often go through even worse oh, sure. moments of of believing, but for not sure. not seeing. For sure, it does seem to me that it does seem to me that at the other side of the dark night of the soul, there's this. Uh, I mean, uh, this profound, almost like perpetual contemplation of God in the soul. This, this mm. um, almost as if the soul sees him face to face. Yeah, but but I think that that is. To your point, it, it's not um, into, it's not mere intellectual effort. Like you're just not trying hard enough. It really is at some point through infused contemplation, the soul becomes passive mm. to God's grace um, through disposing itself in such a way that God draws it along this path yeah. um, and provides this sort of certitude in which the Holy Spirit speaks un- unimpeded yeah. um, in some ways. Yeah, but, but it's not. But I think for our students, for us to expect ourselves to be there, when most of us are in the purgative way, maybe some of us have a foot in the, in the illuminative way. Yeah. But when I have students say, you know, Dr. B went through a real dark night of the soul. I'm like, you didn't. You were sad. You were depressed. You were grieving. <laughs> you like, save some room but for the that, dark night yeah, of the soul. Yeah. But, yeah. but the dark night of the soul is a thing. And, and it's, it's, if you're not, you know, the mystics will say, unless you're engaged in first discursive meditation yeah. and then infused contemplation and yeah. then, when you're not praying for even 10 minutes a day, mm. you didn't go through the dark <laughs> night of the soul, right? So, yeah. um, but, but I think you're right that our, I've noticed the same thing where mm-hmm. students feel this sigh of relief that it's yeah. not a deficiency, deficiency in me to have a certain um, a question or doubt or to be able to think of other yeah. possibilities as right. to why right. something might have happened other than yeah, you know, and, it, and it can be helpful to distinguish between different kinds of doubt yeah. too, right? So there's there's real doubt, say that God exists or that Christianity is true or that Jesus is divine. There's real doubt where you are actively in a state of disbelief, and we've got to at least distinguish. We could probably make lots of distinctions here, but we could at least distinguish that from, huh? I can't fully explain that, or why do we believe that as Christians? Yes. Or that seems weird. That seems weird. Yeah. Virgin birth. That's kind of weird. Yeah, right, right. that that. You know, I mean, you're a psychologist, right, Matt? So you know that people have all kinds of weird thoughts all the time, all right? The time. And so, I mean, I you yeah, know, I have them. I'll be, you know, what's yeah, really funny? So I'll that, find yeah. my, I'll find myself here and there on a, in a strange mood or something, and be like, does God exist? And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, he exists. Yeah, you know, like, sure. but but it's a random thought, not a not a substantive, sustained, you yes. know, thing. Yes. So I find, you know, so you can find yourself with all kinds of weird, and that is not the same. As substantive doubt and disbelief, and yeah. or or refusal to believe in the face of the evidence, right. a kind of obstinacy. It's not that. Even a sustained, I don't see how this could make sense. Yes. I don't think it's a real doubt. No. And Newman, by the way, has this cool. Dis- I mean, we could use lots of different words for this, but Newman distinguishes between a sort of um, inquiry and investigation. Right. He thinks if you're really, if you're, um, I don't remember which one's which, but you know, he, what he's trying to say is this: there's a difference between actively trying to discover the truth and that's obviously incompatible with a commitment to that to that proposition right so so say the proposition is god exists well if you believe that proposition that god exists then you're not going to be actively inquiring into its truth but he says there's a kind of investigation that um that is compatible with with faith or with belief in this proposition where 
you want to understand why it works or how it works, or you want to help others along the way, or you want to satisfy yourself more as to why this is true. Those are all compatible with believing in its in its yeah. truth. And so, um, so you know, apologetic arguments and things those can be interesting even apart from trying to decide whether God exists. They they can be interesting for their own sake or for helping to. to discover that there are rational grounds for things that you believe. There are sort of independent rational grounds for things that you already believe based on testimony and trust and other other sorts of factors. So so I wouldn't say that, you know, if you're wanting if you're wanting to be satisfied more, I think it's a good distinction, Brian. If you're wanting to be satisfied more in a certain sense, that doesn't mean that you're in a state of doubt or disbelief or that you're displeasing God um, in your in your thought life, I think. Uh, I want to go back to something. Yeah. You said cumulative case a few times. Oh yeah. And then you also said Newman uh, he doesn't disparage logic or yeah. put things into argument, syllogistic form or something, but he does criticize a certain view of it. Yeah. One way of reading um, cumulative case is not it's not that I have one argument like that. Yeah, it's yeah. that I have seven formalized arguments. Right. Um, but you want to give a much broader account of cumulative case yeah. arguments and evidence, right? So I was wondering and if that's you just right. clarify that, because I think a lot of us, when we think of evidence or arguments or yeah. cases, we think of a formalized yeah. proposition. Like, it's, it's, it's figured out. Yeah. It's, Here's the seven lines or ten pages. Right. These, are, yeah, that's what the Bayesian probability guys are, are doing, or something yeah. like that. Right. That they to give a bunch of formal arguments and then add them up with numbers and right. and so forth. Now, mm. Newman thinks that when when I'm thinking of accumulated case in Newman, Newman, for one thing, he thinks most of our reasoning is rather implicit rather than explicit. And so, going back to his very early days in the, the Oxford University sermons, he's making a, a distinction between our usual mode of implicit reasoning. You know, you come home and you see your spouse's keys on the on the table, and you just immediately believe that that she's home. That my guess is you don't literally walk through some syllogism that um, you know my wife's keys are here. If my wife's keys are here, she's likely to be home. You know, therefore, she's likely to be home. You just you have these immediate responses to your environment, and there's obviously a rational Im- structure beneath the service, and so beneath the service, and so most of our reasoning is it's indeed logical. It's just not formal in that sense. And so Newman thinks that's the case the vast majority of the time, and that we we really only bring in logic in a third person way. So I believe my wife is home this way, but if you call me and you're like, dude, your wife's not home. All right, then I'm going to start making arguments and putting things into syllogisms because you're a philosopher, yeah. right? But you know, I'm going to start giving sort of explicit reasons that we could easily range into a, a you know a formal syllogism or argument. Um, and so I think that's what Newman thinks is that we only bring that in in certain argumentative contexts or after the fact to try to show why something's true to ourselves or to another person. The vast majority of the time, we we are reasoning implicitly. And so I think that he thinks we're going around. We have lots of evidence from lots of different sources. Evidence does not reduce down to arguments or syllogisms Mm. because the vast majority of our thought doesn't reduce down to arguments or syllogisms. And so I think he's a very broad – I think he's he's exactly right about this. He has a very broad and humane view of evidence that that consists in all of your – the totality of your experience, I think. And so – when he, when I talk about a cumulative case in Newman, it's not going to be seven formal arguments put together. It's going to be something like this data point, that that data point, and on and on and on. And all the data points are are pointing in a sort of converging way toward the conclusion. And the beauty of that kind of argument, I know that sometimes you know many many of us in Catholic intellectual culture, um, a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, want sort of 
these moments sort of demonstrative arguments for almost everything because they feel like that gives security. Mm. But the beauty of Newman to me is that he's pointing out that in everyday life, that's not where your security comes from. Your security comes from having such a broad array of evidence. I mean, the beauty of a kind of cumulative case in this sense is that no one piece of evidence, should it, it falter, doesn't fall. it doesn't, yeah. yeah, your whole belief doesn't stand or fall with one thing. Whereas if you're talking about a logical demonstration and someone comes along and points out that your metaphysical principle, here's a possible counterexample to that, you're like, oh no. Yeah. You know, it's one thing and all, it's resting with all its weight. And so... There are advantages to, to, you know, deductive and more inductive and cumulative case arguments. They, they have different advantages and disadvantages that we could talk about. But my sense is that Newman really doesn't, he, it's, he certainly does not want to say this in an overly formal way. I guess I would just say that in terms of, uh, you know, deductive arguments and demonstrations, they have their advantages because if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. And that's a beautiful thing. There's a kind of beautiful... Um, I mean, log, you know, formal logic is really is really beautiful, and you and, and as long as I think that these two things are true, and as long as they are, the other one absolutely has to be true. That logical necessity is really cool, and it lets you focus on the truth of the premises, so you can not worry about the structure. It lets you really zero in, so you put it in a structure so that you don't have to worry that your reasoning yeah. is bad. You only exactly, you only have to worry about whether the premises are true. So if you're plugging true premises into a hmm. good structure, right, then you're guaranteed a, a true conclusion. And so the beauty is. Don't have to focus on the structure anymore. Just focus on the truth of the premises. So it lets you zero in. But the beauty of inductive and cumulative case arguments and what philosophers call inference to the best explanation, or sometimes they call it abduction, the beauty of, of these other less formal modes of reasoning is that you don't rest, rest with your whole weight on one principle that some philosopher somewhere has disputed, but you haven't read about it. Yeah. And that's a kind of... So there's advantages and disadvantages to, to yeah. both. But I think at least what Newman would point out is the vast majority of your life is sure, and the vast majority of, of things that you are utterly certain of, that you would never pretty much change no matter, you know, never change no matter what, right? That you exist and that you have hands and all these kinds of things. The, the vast majority of things that you believe that are um, what Wittgenstein calls hinge propositions, right? That almost your whole life is going to turn on these and you would, you would give up everything else before you gave up some of these things, like the fact that you have hands. Um, these kinds of propositions are, Newman would argue that they are ordinarily achieved not through some logical demonstration, but through just such a wide variety of experiences that they're almost, they're, they're so close to indubitable, even though you could think of a possible crazy scenario where it's, where they're not true. And so I, I think, I think Catholic intellectual culture kind of focuses on deduction and pretending like there's a kind of magic in deduction that gives us so much security and certainty, I think that's a big mistake because Newman's saying, and ordinarily that's actually not how it works, and and he gives lots of cases. Um, And it also seems to make us rest with our whole weight on one thing. And I worry about any of our students or any of, you know, our friends, I worry about anyone resting the most deep things in life on any one little argument, you know? Yeah. So I feel this way sometimes about some of the arguments for God's existence, right? Where people are just like, no, this is the one. Yeah. And it's it's like, man, philosophers have disputed that principle for like 2,000 years. Yeah. Are you kidding me? This yeah. is the one you're going to rest with your whole weight on. And if it, and it you know, if it, uh, if it fails, man, you're in trouble. Right. And by the way, they very rarely, at least in <clears throat> when you see them presented to, to atheists or non-believers or agnostics, I've yet to see somebody have be successful. <laughs> have a light bulb moment where, where yeah. somebody lays out the argument and it just the truth shines through in yeah. such a way with this sort of syllogism that yeah. it, it 
the person realizes they get bowled over. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not the way that stuff works. But but when you see lots of reasons point, that's that's why that conversion's kind of slow. Because even to be very even to be very sure about one particular theistic argument, I think to really feel very secure about it, you need to see a lot of other data points pointing in the same direction. And then you actually have more security about that argument itself. You know, and that you're not mistaken on its key metaphysical principle or something. I like this idea. Yeah. That's not to say they don't have their place, not to say they're not valuable. It's, it's, just, it's just to say, in ordinary life, we have a wide array of evidence that we rely on, not some one thing. Yeah. And so we ought to at least be careful, you know, before we tell others, other, other fellow believers, oh, you ought to be resting with your whole weight on this one thing. And it's not even to say it's not powerful. There are powerful demonstrative arguments. But by the way, some of them are really hard to follow. Yep. I mean, yep. I'm a philosopher, and I think they're hard to follow, yep. right? Or if, or if, or if you've... Yep. Um, you know, seeing some of these syllogisms from Ed Fazer and other other you know prominent Catholic intellectuals, I think you know one of his syllogisms has sixty three premises or something in his last book. Yeah. Who can who could I can't keep that, that all in my yep. mind. I'm not that confident of it. But yeah. you know, but do I think he's onto something that there's a data point here that is pointing in God's direction and that it, you know if you walk through it you, you'd have the better of every premise? Yeah, I think oh. so. But it's even hard to see if a sixty three premise syllogism is valid. Yep. Um, you know yep. that that it has a right structure. So. So my plea would be, Newman's onto something here: cumulative cases from a wide array of evidence, and to have a and to have a much more humble view of evidence than like these utter demonstrations that demolish my foes and you know and so forth. That's just way too high of a standard. I don't think we should put a burden on ourselves and our fellow believers that we have to vanquish all foes with one argument. Yep. That's just nothing works like that. So so I guess my my plea here would too be nothing works like that. Right, that's just not the way reality is. It's not. That's not the way human beings work psychologically. Yes. Right? Yes. Is that you get you? You know, when was the last time you changed your politics or your moral beliefs because you were bowled over by someone's you know syllogism, syllogism. Exactly. on a two-minute cable news segment? You know, it's like never going to happen. Well, it happens on Facebook, not on. Oh cable yeah, right. News. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's it's like that's just not the way. That's not the way we work. So if we were a little more humble about our aims. It might help us relate well and make better arguments to other people. It almost, it, and it also might protect ourselves from inflating any one argument that we have. We, you don't feel the need to do that when you see. I mean, the thing is, I'm really convinced that that I'm really, really convinced that there are so many good lines of reasoning, so many good lines of evidence pointing to God's existence and pointing to the truth of the faith. I don't, I don't see the need to inflate it beyond that. I don't see the need to. Um, act like we have these, you know, these demonstrations that will bowl over all of our enemies at any moment. I just don't yeah. think we need it. Yeah. I think we have really good reasons. Yep. And I think we should be content with human knowing, as you said, and really good reasons and not, not go overboard with it. Yeah. Maybe what's next? So, so this, mm. this is a neat project. Uh, yeah. It, what are you working on? Is this going to lead to something else in this vein, or are you switching gears? So I'm. So my uh, my friend Fred Aquino and I at Abilene. He's at Abilene Christian University, <laughs> and um, we've been working on a book on Newman's epistemology. And so we're trying to to put together various chapters on different strands of his epistemology. And this sort of fallibilism, where he he believes that um, that knowledge can be had without utterly you know mm-hmm. um, perfect reasons for things. That's going to be sort of one chapter here showing that he falls into this broadly fallibilist camp. We're, we're going to write another chapter on 
on his view, his sort of that broader and more humane view of evidence that he has, and 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 a few other things. And hmm. what what we're trying to show is that broadly he fits into what I would call the common sense epistemology tradition. Um, and this is a tradition that is an is a non-skeptical tradition. So it starts with ordinary knowledge and thinks that we know things, and it starts with a very sort of innocent until proven guilty outlook. So a lot of people think in epistemology. Um, we should start everything with a kind of skepticism and everything with a kind of um, guilty until proven innocent. You know, that all your beliefs, you shouldn't believe, you should take any belief you have, and unless you can really give really good reasons for it right this yeah. second, then it's, you know, you should throw it out. That's yeah. kind of what, yeah. you know, what people, what some people think. And I, the, the common sense epistemology tradi- tradition wants to say something like this. Um, the things that seem true to you um, have a kind of innocent until proven guilty. Uh, innocent until proven guilty is the way that we should treat them. and Because you can obviously be wrong about things, and if you find counter evidence to your beliefs, you really should abandon them. And But that doesn't mean that you have to s- start by saying, if I can't demonstrate this, I'm going to mm. throw it out. Mm. Um, and so I think that he fits broadly into this, this anti-skeptical, um, you know, anti-skeptical tradition that takes... Uh, evidence in a in a in a very broad sense, not just arguments count as evidence or formal arguments, um, and and then show that he he has this sort of common sense uh, epistemology, and then we want to apply it to some various you know issues and you know r- religious belief and and cool. so forth. But but you know no one's really seemed to seems to have written a definitive you know maybe not definitive but. Um, even a really solid, solid work on Newman's epistemology. You know, there are different chapters here and there on it and di- lot, some different published papers, but I haven't seen one book that I'm just really satisfied with. It tries to give you a general overview of how we might categorize him, hmm. how we might defend some of his claims. Hmm. So one thing we've been working on is Newman seems to make a lot of strong claims about how it's okay for your emotions and your um, dispositions to affect your beliefs. Interesting. And and so we have a chapter where we've tried to defend Newman on this point by showing that by by pointing to a lot of contemporary research on emotions yeah. and the fact that they're not just you know these random feelings they're that rational, you get, but yeah. that they have a kind of ra- that, yeah, yeah. that they can be rational, that they're cognitive at least, yeah. or at least have a cognitive dimension, that they um, that they can be indicative of the truth. So when you see when you get angry, seeing a mugger mugging someone in an alley, the feeling that comes over you is not some random yeah. feeling of anger that came over you, but a kind of a kind of um, how to put it, a kind of reception of what's really going on, right? A kind of perception into the injustice of what's happening. Now, you didn't rationally walk through that. Sure. There's a mugger, and when they do this, this is an injustice, therefore I shall get angry, right? You know, you sure. don't wor- The beauty of emotions is, is that they help you easily and quickly recognize the situation precisely without, Absolutely. you know, without walking through all that rational stuff. So it's actually a really good thing, by the way, that we're built yes. to, to recognize a kind of cumulative case implicitly that we can sort of believe in the direction of our evidence in everyday matters and it's really good that we're built in this way with these emotions that that give us a shortcut, shortcut yeah, you know right. to get to the right conclusion that there's an injustice here or you know if you see everyone running at you with panicked faces you know yeah. you should just Play you're going to immediately start <laughs> running with them and that's a good yeah. thing that you don't need to reason well what are the what's the probability that Godzilla is coming it. around the prove corner it. Prove, prove it yeah what's your <laughs> argument yeah um, so so we hope to show that he has he has a kind of winsome epistemology and and again the broader aim in that sense is to give 
Catholic intellectual culture a, a way, a non-rationalistic way mm. to think about our belief formation and having reasonable beliefs and not, not everything boils down to having these strict metaphysical demonstrations about everything and so forth. Look forward to that book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. You bet. You bet anytime. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Thank <laughs> you.